Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, we're focusing on seeding our imaginations in conversation with Diane Wilson. Diane is a gardener. She's the Emeritus Executive Director of Dream of Wild Health and more recently, Emeritus Executive Director of the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance. Diane has long interwoven her gardening and her advocacy work with her writing. And her first novel, The Seed Keeper, was published by Milkweed Press in 2021. I am so pleased to be revisiting this conversation. Enjoy. Diane, following your work for some time now, I am so pleased to be speaking with you today, especially about this novel. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Jennifer. I am so excited to be part of this conversation today. Give us a little bit of an abstract, motivating, or animating principle for your life and its relationship with plants as that exists right now, Diane. Wow, that's a good question. Um, I would sum it up by saying that I'm a writer and a gardener. And so all of my life, from the work I do, from um, the time I spend in the garden and the time I spend writing, have become intertwined together so that my work is all about seeds and stories. And so they inform each other. I plant seeds, I tend, I tend plants, and then I write about them. And then the things I'm writing about get cycled back into the garden. So that's, that is the defining focus of my life, along with the, the Dakota saying, metakuye owasi, which means we are all related. And so I try to bring that sense of kinship into doing that work as a writer and a gardener. I'm going to have you take us back a little bit and tell us about your earliest influences, where you were born and raised and the, the people and the places and plants that formed you and grew you into a person for whom this would be your strongest motivating principle? Mm. I grew up in Minneapolis, um, and I had four siblings. My dad was Swedish heritage, and my mother was Lakota. And what I knew about her life was that she spent six years at the Holy Rosary Mission School on the Pine Ridge Reservation, mm but she really didn't like to talk about it. So I grew up with a lot of questions around cultural identity. And so for me, the, um, the writing piece came first. It, as an adult, I began working on a memoir about my mother's family. And I went back five generations and, and learned all about boarding schools. I learned about um, land allotment and the removal of Dakota people from Minnesota after the 1862 Dakota War. So I learned all the history that I, I hadn't been taught in schools. And then as I was working on that memoir, uh, this was probably 20 years ago, I actually heard about these very old, rare seeds, indigenous seeds that were being grown out at a garden just south of the Twin Cities. And it was one of those moments where I thought, 
I've got to go be with those mm. seeds. I've got to, I got to be part of that work. So, and that was both as a gardener, I just, you know, I j- was fascinated by what they were growing and um, the fact that they were so old and, and so um, there were so few left of them, but they were also carrying stories. So the, of the people who had cared for them. So for example, they had Cherokee trail of tears, corn, um, that had been carried, that was descended from the corn that had been carried on that mm-hmm. removal. And, and th- these were seeds that had come to um, a program called Dream of Wild Health. So I started volunteering there. And that was really the beginning of my, I would say, my real education around seeds, plants, food sovereignty, um, the, di- the cultural difference in worldviews between an indigenous worldview that is very relational with respect to plants and a worldview um, that is extractive. I spent the next 19 years working on behalf of those seeds. And then it came back full circle into, well, then I started writing about it again. So that was a really pivotal moment, though, for me when I uh, began volunteering with those seeds. What year was that? And about how old would you have been in that moment where you heard about and then gravitated towards those seeds and the stories they held? So 20 years ago, I would have been in my 40s. You know, up to that point, I had been working primarily in the arts, Mm. always moving towards writing, always uh, doing gardening as well. But I was doing gardening in the way that I had been taught when I grew up, which was, you know, very conventional. And, and it wasn't until I I really got involved both in writing that memoir, which taught me so much about history Mm. and values and um, just what was important for me to learn as a, uh, a person who had, whose life had been impacted by generations going through boarding schools. And then also then the, the work that I was learning in terms of processing those experiences back into into writing. There are so many things I want to follow up on here, uh, but the first is tell us a little bit more about the gardening thread that was clearly already um, well developed in you by the time you started writing your memoir. And the memoir, I believe, is Spirit Car, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so. Um, Tell us about, like, how did gardening become introduced to you? You know, some of the memories that I have growing up as a child um, is of both, of grandparents on both sides. Grandparents on my Swedish side, my dad's side, were both gardeners, and they kept a big garden at their house um, in Rush City. And so I have really fond memories of spending time out in the raspberry patch in mm-hmm. particular. <laughs> and there was, and the way my my grandmother showed me was we would take, it was like a, an old paint can that had been very thoroughly cleaned out. And then you string a piece of twine around it so that it can hang from your neck. And so then it leaves your hands free to to be picking 
um, raspberries and in theory, putting them in the bucket, not in really, your mouth. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was picking and eating all the way down the road. So that, that was just uh, and I still love raspberries. I love to grow them and eat them, but you know, those are really pleasurable memories of spending time outside and, you know, and they had a root cellar. So it was the coolest thing to see somebody be able to go down into the ground and touch walls made out of earth inside their house. Mm-hmm. So that was super cool. And then my mother's mother, my other grandmother also kept a garden. So when uh, my sister and I visited her, she would go out to the garden and pick the vegetables that she would put in her soup. So there was always this very pleasant association with spending time with grandparents and that that connection between Oh, you grow your food, of course. So then you can make these beautiful meals and share it as a family. So that, and then my dad was a big gardener too. So I I helped him um, all through his life. So when he got to the point where he couldn't garden anymore, then I would come over and just tend his garden for him. So it was a, you know, it was a really sweet way for us to spend time together. I would love to ask you to read the beginning of the book, The Seed Keeper, an opening passage that kind of contextualizes the entire book from there. The seeds are one of the characters in the novel, which is done in, I think, kind of a subtle way. But the fact that the book opens with their statement is intended to provide um, a frame, a cultural and time frame for thinking about the story that follows and considering it from the perspective of the seeds themselves. So that's why it's titled The Seeds Speak. This is what they they want you to know. They want all of us to know about a relationship that is thousands and thousands of years old. We are hungry, but the sleep is upon us. We are thirsty, but the mother has instructed us not to wake too early. We are restless, chafing against this thin membrane, pushing back against the dark that bids us to lie still, suspended in a near death that is not dying. We hold time in this space. We hold a thread to infinity that reaches to the stars. The mother gave us patience stronger than our hunger, stronger than our thirst. We dwell in the realm of dreams and spirit. When the sun draws near, we awake and embrace the warmth, fed by the soil and nourished by the rain. When the cold returns, we withdraw once more to rest and to dream. We remember when all of the world had its own song. To know the song was to speak to all beings in their own language. The land told stories of faraway places, of mountains and cliffs and verdant valleys. The mighty river sang its slow course along the ridges once carved by a glacier. Long ago, when the frost was still dug deep in the earth, the humans came. They sang us awake and offered gifts of prayer. They came as humble relatives with a pitiful need to see their children survive. An agreement was made. We surrendered our wildness to live in partnership with the humans, 
Because we cared for each other, the people and the seeds survived. For many generations, this agreement was kept. Our hunger was fed, our thirst was quenched, our restlessness was fulfilled each time we breached the earth's crust to reach toward the sun, toward the stars. Then came a long silence, a drought of memory, a time of darkness. They came no more, calling us with song and prayer. Still we waited, just as the mother had instructed. The earth kept spinning through her seasons, but the humans did not return. Now our time is almost gone. The pulse of life flickers, dims as the heartbeat slows. We cannot wait much longer. Thank you. I have read it multiple times in the course of reading the book and, and reviewing. And that drought of memory, that phrase right there is what just sits right in my belly, Diane. Mm. Mm-hmm. With that, I want to then keep you going on your path to, to share with listeners where you go from this first meeting of the old seeds and this group you begin volunteering with and take us on the trajectory that leads you to um, even, even more an increased uh, organization and activism um, and eventually to the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance. Well, let's see. So I was volunteering right around 2000 for the next few years with those seeds and just learning a whole different way of being in the garden. So I had some some really gifted teachers. Uh, Yago Tanaga was one of them. And she taught me how to come in the garden from a place of reverence so that as you approach the garden to do whatever work it is you're going to do that, that day, you always start with a smudge just to cleanse yourself, to make sure you're in that that right frame of mind and heart. Mm. And then before you plant or before you harvest, before you do anything, you offer a gift of tobacco with a prayer of gratitude. And that, to me, is really the embodiment of that, that saying I mentioned, Mitaku Yeowasi, we are all related, mm-hmm. because it, it signals that you are a living being with equal presence and needs and rights to be in this world and when you offer yourself or your medicines or the food that you provide that's a gift and that gift provides life and so by acknowledging that gift of life that makes this exchange sacred and so that is what I learned in those early years as a gardener and then in 2008 that little garden had uh, moved up to Hugo, which is just north of the Twin Cities, and purchased a 10-acre farm. And at that point, they invited me to come in and become the next executive director. So the founder was retiring, and I had accumulated other skills by that point, so I I, I could come in and help build the organization. So that was the work that I then did for the next 11 years, help build the programs for Dream of Wild Health. But at the same time, I learned so much in my time there. I got to work with elders. Um, Ernie Whiteman was one of them. And I'm sure there's people listening who know him because he knew everyone. 
But, but he was the one that reinforced that idea that we start every day in prayer. We, we do this work in the garden from that place of reverence. But he also taught us so much about um, understanding the history, too, about what happened when tribes were moved onto reservations and lost that access to traditional diet. The, the foods that were hunted or gathered or cultivated and instead were given commodity foods. So there's this big disconnect that happened around food, around those indigenous foods. And it was, it was part of our relearning this new relationship of being in the garden that you also understand why we are in that position of having to relearn this relationship. You know, this is a birthright, but because of the way history has evolved, um, especially what happened between settlers and native people and the establishment of the reservation system and what that, how that impacted our foods and our health, then we, we were doing the work of cultural recovery. So that gave me a much different understanding of just how deep gardening goes. That it's not only that relationship in the immediate present with that plant, but it's also this, this expression of who we are in the world. So we were doing that work of cultural recovery on behalf of um, especially the urban native community in the Twin Cities. So that was the work that taught me really the foundation for what went into the seed keeper. And then that, that work then led to two years then after that, I also worked for the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance and helped develop its infrastructure. And it was fascinating to then take what I had learned at Dream of Wild Health, which is very much a Minnesota regional organization, and then apply it to what was a national organization. And both of them have done so well. So Dream of Wild Health is now a 30-acre farm. And NAFSA, Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance, is poised for huge growth with its new executive director. This is Cultivating Place. This week, we're revisiting a best-of conversation with Diane Wilson, gardener, advocate for indigenous land-based cultural recovery, and writer. Her first novel, The Seed Keeper, was published by Milkweed Press in 2021. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. Just this last week, I received my Garden Conservancy Open Days yearbook in the mail. Did you? It's going to be a great garden touring and learning season. Hey, it's Jennifer. I really love how Diane Wilson refers to her first direct work with the legacy seeds of her people 
as volunteering with the seeds. Not volunteering with the organization of Dream of Wild Health, which was clearly formative and important in her life, but no, she was volunteering with the seeds. It reminds me of our conversation in the spring of 2021 with the Refugia team out of Philadelphia and the woman Esther being given advice to find work on behalf of or in service to plants. It's nice to remember that not only do the plants, the flowers, the foliage, the seeds, and the structures of our plants provide so much in our days, but that we as gardeners work for them. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with Diane Wilson, gardener, advocate, and author of the 2021 novel, The Seed Keeper. As we come back, Diane talks about the progress that's been made towards better seed literacy and care these past 20 years in our society at large, but especially with the leadership voices of Black and Indigenous women. I'm actually kind of astonished at the amount of progress and momentum that has occurred even within the last 20 years. So when I think about 20 years ago when, you know, it was just those handful of seeds starting to be grown out, nobody knew what to do with them. You know, we 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 knew how to garden, but it's different when you're dealing with with seeds that might be the very last remaining survivors of their kind. And then to know that if you plant the corn, for example, that because it's wind pollinated and pollen can travel for miles, then how do you protect that from the GMO corn that is everywhere in Minnesota? And we have millions of acres of, of GMO corn. So we, you know, we had to solve really big challenges and are still working because the, the agricultural system is set up to protect those growers, the GMO corporate farms, and and to, at the expense of the smaller organic farmers growing heirloom seeds. But um, so in that 20 year period, though, we go from not having, in, you know, just barely getting back to the to reclaiming that that work and that knowledge to seeing because people recognize almost immediately, I think it's that same intuitive call that I felt that brought me to volunteer. People recognize mm -hmm. it in the seeds. There's a magic. There is something that pulls you right in, especially if you're a gardener already. You know that mm -hmm. those seeds are carrying life, they're carrying stories, and they're carrying a different, a different relationship to the earth than the one that we've been um, led to believe is right for our communities. It's a return to, to gardening. It's a return to reciprocity mm -hmm. where we, we really take care of the soil and the water and the plants themselves. That hunger that I think people are carrying for that, mm -hmm. that reconnection mm -hmm. yes. again. So what yes. I've seen then even in the past decade, the, we've seen so many um, chefs, native chefs emerge who are working with indigenous foods. You know, in Minneapolis, we have our very first 
Native American cuisine restaurant with Sean Sherman, the sous chef has developed. Right. And and that's put Native American cuisine back where it belongs, which is look at how incredible these foods are, how nutritious, how mm -hmm. delicious, and and how how really good for us, not only physically, but also spiritually, to be eating these foods again. So to have been part of that, the emergence of this movement, it's joyful work, and it transforms people at a time when, you know, we really need those places of joy in our life. And I think, as you say, there is this kind of zeitgeist of people wanting to engage with gardening in this way. So let's get into the seed keeper. You've been doing all this work in your adult life, uh, gardening, growing organizations, bringing people together to reclaim and restore cultural significance and engagement to these seeds and these stories and these ways of being. What becomes the catalyst for the seed keeper? Because I can see so many... Um, you know, seeds that from your life that are going to go into the book um, and, and take on a whole new life. Tell us about the, the process at which you said, I'm going to write this book and it's going to be this way. Well, I was, I was actually at a, a writer's residency. It was probably around 2009. And I was working on my second book, which is called Beloved Child. And that one was really about understanding historical trauma. Mm-hmm. But I was telling some of the women that I was there with about the work I was doing with seeds. And when I told them about the seed keeper as this person who takes care of seeds, who is maintaining them in a way that is, is holding them for the next season, but also for future generations, this one woman said, well, there's the title of your novel. And I thought, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> and that stuck, you know, it was a little seed. And so, and that, and it, and it fascinated me because I'd written these two books, um, creative nonfiction and then nonfiction. And the idea that I could really just embrace story and work with language was really appealing to me as a writer. But it also made me think back to a story that I'd heard, boy, in 2002, when I was participating on the Dakota Commemorative March. It actually started in 2002, and it was to honor 1,700 Dakota women, children, and elders who were force-marched from the Lower Sioux Reservation, what is now the Lower Sioux Reservation, to a prison camp in Fort Snelling. And, and this was just before the Dakota were removed from the state. And, and you, you know, it's helpful to know that this is not a, t a history that has been taught in Minnesota until in more recent years. So we, this march was organized to remember this history and to honor those relatives and their sacrifices. But the story that I heard was that when these Dakota women were being rounded up and they didn't know where they were being sent and they didn't know how they were gonna feed their families, they took their seeds and they sowed them 
in the hems of their skirts and they hid them in their pockets so that they could protect them and they could make sure they had something to plant in the coming season, but they were also protecting them for the future. So it was that action. I thought, oh my God, to be in that situation where you you have no idea what's going to happen. You have no idea how you're going to feed and protect your children and to have that presence of mind and that courage and strength. So even when families were going hungry on that march, they protected those seeds. So we have them today and I'm even able to grow them in my garden so that I maintain that, that same connection. You know, I don't grow a lot of them, but I want to make sure that, you know, that line continues and that, and that we remember the sacrifices and the courage that they showed. Because even though it's very different these days, those seeds are, are still in great risk because of the, the way the environment has shifted to, to genetically modified seeds. So it's on our watch now. It's our responsibility to make sure that we take care of those seeds just as those women did all those years ago. I put that story in the heart of the book and then showed that moving forward in time until you get to Rosalie's life. And she was the character who had really come to what is the almost the furthest that assimilation can push a family without you completely losing your connection to your to who you are. And this is one of the things that is so astounding to me about the narrative is the depth of history and both individual level history, but also broad cultural history uh, in terms of indigenous people and settler mentality and and colonialism and erasure, but also... Um, environmental and horticultural history. And the book starts with Rosalie Ironwing, um, a sort of middle-aged woman who's just been widowed. I don't think I'm giving anything terrible away. Uh, it's right in the beginning. It's right in the first oh, chapter. Right <laughs> it's right out there. Right and and a, a, a young adult son and her trying to find answers to mysteries in her own story, and also trying to feed this restlessness and hunger and grief that she has not figured out or processed in her in her life to this point. In terms of that complexity, uh, you know, what was your process for the story? Well, it took me over the span of ten years, mm -hmm. off and mm -hmm. on. I wrote, I worked on it, but I, you know, to me, it took 20 years to learn what I needed right. to know in order to <laughs> right, <write it>. right. <laughs> but you know, what's funny is that the process of writing is actually very messy, <laughs> messy and chaotic, at least in my world. Yes, That's my experience. So, so in hindsight, I started it in the middle, um, just, you know, the first thing I sat down and wrote was Rosalie when she returned to her childhood home. Mm. And, and so that was the premise for me that she has, she was leaving a place of safety. She was a character who had lost everything. She had no family, no connection to her community, her language, her identity. It was, it had all been taken away. 
And so she was at that moment in her life where she, she just, she had to figure it out. She had to understand who she was and, you know, it, that can go a lot of ways. Yes. So in the beginning, the story was going to be all told from Rosalie. And so as I wrote it, I went, I went backwards in front of in backwards in time in front of what I had started with. And then I, worked and then I'd go the other direction and work that and then at some point I just do in the process of doing a a writing exercise these other voices started to emerge Mm. so the the characters that were were not in the early drafts speaking characters it turned out they had a lot to say (laughs) so like Marie (laughs) and yeah and Darlene and Gabby right and and I realized, well, if I gave them each their own voice, they could bring a different perspective and a different, you know, in some ways also bring a different time period. Yes. So Marie being able to, to you know, embody that experience of, of sowing the seeds in her skirt. And then we see her part of the family moving through um, the removal and the boarding schools and the impact that that had. And then, and then how that, how that relationship with seeds evolved over time to these generations. This is Cultivating Place. And this week we're revisiting a best of conversation with Diane Wilson, gardener advocate for indigenous land-based cultural recovery and writer. Her first novel, The Seed Keeper, was published by Milkweed Press in 2021. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. All right, so thinking out loud this week, can you believe we're almost here again at the vernal equinox? I think we all know, maybe especially as gardeners, that the one constant is that things are always changing. And one of the greatest gifts of the garden in my life and in my mind is that the garden not only gives us an access into this seasonal knowledge, but it also asks us and equips us to have a certain comfort and familiarity with this truth of life. We are always changing, we are always cycling, and there are always new lessons to learn or old lessons to relearn in every new cycle, whether they are about growth or they are about demise, whether they are about gain or they are about loss life or death, love or competition. Enjoy the ongoing, ever-growing journey, my friends. We're back now to our conversation with Diane Wilson, gardener, advocate, and author of the 2021 novel, The Seed Keeper. As we come back, Diane talks about the characters and themes of her novel and how she hopes that they will seed 
the reader's imaginations with greater understanding around cultural trauma and loss, as well as seed our imaginations with the possibilities for healing and growing from here. So for listeners, just to, to, to make this a little bit more clear, Rosalie Ironwing is the primary character. Marie Blackbird is her great-great-grandmother, married to Oliver. Darlene is her great aunt. It is Darlene who she who Rosalie finds in a it's an elders nursing yep. home, mm-hmm. uh, and she is tending to these seeds in cans and buckets on windowsills mm-hmm. in her little apartment. And Ida is uh, the woman who lives next door to Rosalie when she returns to her childhood home, and she was a young woman she had known in the past. And Gabby is her best friend from early school years. Uh, and, and she is a very engaged Native American woman, activist, tribal member, powwow attender, and, and within a family of her own with an aunt and a brother that are very important characters also. Yes, yes. So we have Marie, we have Darlene, the great aunt, we have Rosalie, and we have Gabby. Those are the four speaking voices. And then uh, uh, there are peripheral characters like Ida. Why was it important for you that these were all women? Because women have traditionally been the seed keepers. Every community is different, but there's a very common element in that women have traditionally been in charge of the gardens while men were um, responsible for hunting. And so as Mm -hmm. the tenders of the garden, they naturally became the seed keepers. And so when it came time to tell the story of those seeds in particular, then it was showing the women in their different time periods, their different roles and experiences, but how each one is doing it the best they can. So Darlene, for example, to show her growing corn in buckets in an elder's um, facility is a way of showing you do what you can with what you have, but you never stop. You never give up. You keep protecting it as long as you're alive. And that's a lesson that Rosalie hadn't gotten. She didn't, you know, because of the way her life Mm -hmm. turned out, she wasn't raised to understand that or to be ready to take that responsibility or to know what to do. So she was kind of thrown into it, but also learning about community and the way community can can help support you and um, how much stronger we all are when we work together as a community. Rosalie has a couple of really interesting interactions in her life. One of them um, is that she kind of falls into this marriage with her husband, John, who is a German descent farmer. Um, and they are two very like wounded people who who find each other and help each other. And it's, there's some ambivalence there and there's some conflicted feelings and you, you don't get a sense of like great passion, but yet you have this like lovely compassion for these two people doing, as you just said, their very best with their limited understandings and training up until that point in their own lives uh, to kind of help each other. Yes. Yes. It was ten- intended to be a complex but compassionate relationship 
and and in a way to show how difficult it is sometimes to to bring those two very different cultural worldviews together you know and that's why thomas um, their son became also a, a conflicted character because he was the one raised with both yes that they both taught him they both hoped that he would follow their path and that becomes a difficult choice in terms of your the loyalty to your parents and what what do you really believe so you know that's that larger theme of um, cultural worldview that informs our relationship to to the land and to plants right this gets to my next complex interaction that Rosalie has in her life. She meets and becomes very close to some neighboring farmers, George and Judith. They are an illustration of there not just being one path in the dominant cultural worldview. They are organic farmers and gardeners they use more land-based methods with their with their crops and their home garden and judith teaches rosalie her first iteration of what it means to be a gardener and while it's not yes. exactly culturally um, as rich as her native american and indigenous gardening relationship will become it is a far cry from the way her husband goes with buying into GMO seed crops and big technological managing of land with machinery. What was the importance for you of, of including George and Judith? So some of the book shows the way the two cultures bump up against each other and how different those worldviews are. But I mm -hmm. also wanted to show the areas that we have in common. So the fact that when Rosalie first discovers seeds, it's actually John's mother's seeds that she saved. And it's bringing that back to the fact that as gardeners, everybody used to save their seeds. You know, we didn't mm -hmm. have a seed industry that we have today. We, you gardened and you kept your seeds for the next season. And I thought, you know, these are values, these are practices that are common to anybody who grows their food as a gardener. And so that was true also of the kind of values that George and Judith demonstrated in when they chose organic, what essentially organic farming and gardening is, that's a traditional native gardening practice. I also want to show that there are ways in which gardening has some really valuable common areas and that to me the bigger most important thing to remember is that for us to do this we're all in this together that it's on all of us to protect the the soil and the water and the seeds and everything around us an indigenous worldview started in this place but the more that we all come to this common understanding this common sharing of responsibility for what's happening to all these wonderful relatives around us that's when we start to really change and heal the earth the scene where where george and judith have to auction off their farm because they they could not you know you get the farm crisis in here you get this just 
highly articulated moment where farmers are pitted against each other in the service of this corporation beautifully named Mangenta um, <laughs> that is that is selling a pipe dream of what they could do or how much they could earn or the, what their productivity could be if only they extracted more, destroyed more, bought into this other way. And George and Judith refused. And there, there is a just a poignant, painful moment where their farm and equipment are being auctioned off and, and you get this direct, you know, one value system standing up against another value system really valiantly and, and failing in the end, uh, at least in that one scene. I would love for you to talk a little bit about um, the importance of Ida before we get to the importance of Gabby. Ida is an ally. Ida is the one that shows how you can support the work that Indigenous people are doing um, and help in whatever way you can without also trying to co-opt it or appropriate it. So she, for me, really exemplified the the, the ally role. And I will just say that your depiction of, again, the complexity and the nuance of what it means to be an ally and or um, learn to be an ally is beautifully wrought there. And, and there is a scene towards the end where Rosalie um, is so pissed off at Ida and she just wants her uh, like out, out of her face right in that moment. And she, she wants to hit her. She wants to yell at her. She wants to tell her she cannot fix anything. Um, it's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful scene about how we are all in a very complex place and showing up with patience and um, compassion is, is the, the best we can do. Yes. And to listen. To listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. And forgive uh, best you can. Yeah. So tell us about Gabby. <laughs> Gabby God, I love Gabby. So much fun to write. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> so I've known some Gabbies in my life who are such strong, fierce activists. They, I have the highest respect for them in their ability to really stand up against whatever it is that is threatening um, their way of life and challenge it, take it on. And so when I was envisioning that character, Gabby's name just popped out right away. And it, and it was just so fun to make her this really kind of mercurial, um, strong-willed, but she was also, she also had to find her path because she was coming up through a lot of trauma, um, but that she also turned it around into becoming a strong-willed activist and advocate for water, for the rivers, but to also show that with that kind of activism, there's also a price to be paid. And it's often in terms of your own family and it can be your own health because the work is endless. There's, there's no end to the work that um, needs to be done in that area. So it was really trying to show her growth as a character from 
you know, that young woman who was somewhat lost to becoming a strong advocate, but then having to find that balance within her own life as well. When you think about the combining of the importance of your own work as an activist and your greatest hopes for this novel to land and germinate in the imaginations of as many people as possible. What are your greatest hopes with that, Diane? When I was working on this book, one of the things that I heard a lot was the way in which the conversation around seeds had become polarized into genetically modified seeds. There were pros, there were cons, people who were just so strong for them or strongly against them. And nowhere in that conversation did I hear any discussion about the seeds themselves in terms of what's right for them. And what I wanted to do really was to reframe that conversation into a discussion around the relationship with seeds and how we've been in this relationship for thousands of years. And that because of that, we've survived. Human beings have thrived, have been been able to um, create established communities. And that at the same time, we had a reciprocal relationship and a responsibility to take care of them. You don't just take. That relational perspective is, to me, what's at the heart of indigenous thought. And then when you compare it to what is that more extractive understanding that came out of a a settler European descended way of farming, Mm -hmm. I really wanted to bring that conversation back into relationship and to hope. My big hope was that as people read it, because it's a story and, and it enters into your imagination and hopefully your heart, then you you can return to that place of remembering your own your own body memory um, rising back up about that relationship that we have with the world around us, and that when we really care about it, when we're in that kind of loving relationship, that's when we take care of it. That's when we find that strength and courage to do the work that needs to be done because we're coming from that place of love. And that to me was the lesson that came out of Standing Rock, that it wasn't a protest against the pipeline. It was, it was protecting what they loved and that was the water. So it's the same thing with the seeds. Um, I'm not interested in that polarized discussion around GMO seeds. I'm interested in finding out, well, how do we fall back in love? with the earth? How do we fall back in love with our seeds? And, and that's why I wanted to tell it in a story so that hopefully it helps us move back to that place. Mm, I love that. And the, that sentence, those two sentences um, in the middle of that opening you read for us about the seeds speaking from the seeds point of view, where they say, we surrendered our wildness to live in partnership with the humans. And because we cared for each other, the people and seeds survived. Yes. Oh. Responsibility. Is there anything you would like to add about your own growth and insights from this path you have been on and 
where it is headed now. Diane. The only thing I'd like to add is that, you know, the world is filled with so much despair and anxiety and fear around climate change, around violence. And I just wanted to remind people that the world around us is not just that, that when you walk outside and you look around you and you take that time to really pay attention and to see how the plants are still there and overhead, maybe there's a flock of geese who, you know, in Minnesota, they're always heading south this time of year, mm-hmm. but there's bird song, there's wind that you, you feel that, that love that uh, Robin Kimmerer talks about in her book, that love that, that the earth has for us. And when you feel that relationship, it helps hold us in these times that are, that are so difficult in, on so many other levels. And to make sure that, that you, we nurture that relationship because that's what helps us survive. That's what helps us get through all these other great issues that we're facing. It's the, to me, the most important relationship that we have in our lives is our relationship with the earth. And if we tend that, then it will make everything else more bearable. I would love to end by having you read for us from further along in the book. And it's a, it's a place where you make a beautiful analogy between seeds and other forms of knowledge and how they are carried and transmitted to the next generation. Would you read that section, Diane? Oh, certainly. So this is... Rosalie speaking, and while she's living at the farm, it's set in 1998. A library book showed me that the tiny seeds I had taken for granted were actually unique living beings with their own history, story, and family. Each seed was made of an embryo, a seed coat, and something nutritious, almost like a packed lunch. The mother plant, like me, wanted only the best for her babies. Some plants, like dandelions, scattered their seeds in the wind, while others, like some pines, needed fire to open their cones. Somehow, the mother knew to dry her seeds almost completely, so they would sleep until the time was right to wake. Each seed held a trace of life that would spark when given water when given the appropriate conditions. Everywhere I looked, I saw how seeds were holding the world together. They planted forests, covered meadows with wildflowers, sprouted in the cracks of sidewalks, or lay dormant until the long-awaited moment came, signaled by fire or rain or warmth. They filled the produce aisle in grocery stores, Seeds breathed and spoke in a language all their own. Each one was a miniature time capsule, capturing years of story in its tender flesh. How ignorant I felt compared to the brilliance contained in a single seed. I had begun to see that when we save these seeds, when we select which ones will be planted again, our lives become braided into the life stories of these plants. 
Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. I so appreciate your your presence and your gift of this book uh, and the work that grew it as well. Well, thank you, Jennifer. I have so enjoyed this conversation with you. Diane Wilson is a gardener. She is the Emeritus Executive Director of Dream of Wild Health in Minnesota, and more recently, the Emeritus Executive Director of the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance, a national network. Diane is the author of award-winning nonfiction, including Spirit Car, Journey to a Dakota Past, and Beloved Child, a Dakota Way of Life. Her first novel, The Seed Keeper, was published by Milkweed Press in 2021. Join us again next week when we head to Tacoma, Washington to learn about the Tacoma Park Department's historic Seymour Conservatory in conversation with the Director of Horticulture, Tyra Chenault, who is growing the way Tacoma gardens and thinks about gardening and plants. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and is made possible by listeners just like you and by partner support from the California Native Plant Society. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.